You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Lord, help us now as we open your word. Lord, that we would tremble before your word, that we would be humbled by it. God, that we would not stand in judgment over your word, but humbly submit ourselves to it. God, would you speak to us? Lord, you know that we are so often um, slow to hear, hard of heart. God, we, um, we're asking that you would send your spirit, open our ears, soften our hearts, that we might see the truth today. Lord, that we might be built up in, in knowing you more and seeing your grace and your kindness more clearly, that we might worship you rightly for all that you are. So Lord, if there's anything I have to say that is not of you this morning, God, I pray that those words would just fall to the ground and be forgotten, uh, but that your word uh, would go forth and, and would, as you promise, accomplish all that you set out for it to accomplish. So God, we, we thank you, um, we praise you, and, and Lord, we just uh, humble ourselves before you now as we come to your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we look at this passage, verses 14 and 15, um, God's first response, God's first words are the curse of sin. It's the curse of sin. He curses the serpent. A curse in the Old Testament um, was a proclamation of God's judgment, God's wrath coming into effect. He curses the serpent saying, uh, he will slither on his belly and eat dust all the days of his life. Now, there's a lot of talk there about what this means. Does this mean that snakes used to have legs and they would walk around like little lizards? Some people surmise that, that before this they had four legs and at this point God took away the legs of the snake. It's interesting. I, I don't think that's necessary from the text. Follow me here. Um, Think about it this way. Um, I, I think it's, it's easy to say, um, almost certainly there were rainbows from the day of creation, right? The way light interacts with water, it reflects off of the molecules and the different wavelengths reflect at different angles and, and a rainbow appears. Those are just the properties of light and water the way they were created to be. Now, Genesis 9 comes along And God promises never again to flood the earth. And and he says that the rainbow will be a sign, a a reminder, a symbol of that promise. It's the same rainbow that's always been. But now it has new meaning. Now when they see the rainbow, it's, it's filled up with this promise attached to this promise of God never again to flood the whole earth. And so every time we see the rainbow, we remember God's promise. I I think the same line of thinking could be used with the serpent, that it's equally likely that the snake was created as a snake. I mean, he's he's pretty specifically designed. His his body is magnificently um, created to, to, to slither along the ground. That may have been the way he was created, but at the fall... 
in this curse, his low stature uh, is, is infused with new meaning. It's not necessarily that he lost his legs at this point, but rather now, every time you see a serpent on the ground, it's a reminder of the Lord's curse. It's a reminder of, of God's disposition toward sin and, and evil. Of course, this is speculative. And, and uh, more importantly, it's secondary. You could totally disagree with me on this, and that's fine. Um, we can still uh, worship together. Um, this is secondary. That's not what this passage is about. What's really going on here is there's something deeper. There is, as we know, something happening behind the snake, not just a physical snake. Revelation 20 talks about um, that ancient serpent who is the devil. Very clear. That, that snake that slithered into the garden, um, the physical animal was just Satan's tool as he spoke through him. Um, this is not about a physical snake, and God's curse is not primarily on uh, the physical animal. It's on Satan. That's who we're talking about here. That's what matters right here. Uh, and this statement is, is powerful. This, this being humbled and put down, you will eat dust. I mean, we still use that today, right? Like, eat my dust. I'm going to go flying by you. I'm going to humiliate you. Um, it's a little more serious than that through the, through the Old Testament. This picture of eating dust is a picture of just complete humiliation. I'm going to crush you. I'm going to destroy you, and you, you're going to be, you're going to have your face smeared into the ground. You're going to eat dirt. God is telling Satan, um, because you rose up in pride against me, because you came in, in arrogance to oppose me, I'm going to absolutely humiliate you. You're going to be brought low. You will be subjugated. Um, God's judgment matches the crime, right? Um, you, you'll hear... You hear Gandhi quoted, right? An eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. Um, Gandhi doesn't understand the Bible. Don't listen to Gandhi about the Bible. Um, that, that was a law that meant if you take my eye, I can't take your life, right? Judgment has to match the crime. The, the punishment has to be equal to the offense. That's what's happening here. Um, Satan lifted himself up in pride against God, and God says, oh, you will be put down. You will be humiliated. Um, there are three beings involved in that first sin, Adam and Eve and the serpent. And, and immediately after the first sin, again, the Lord calls out to Adam, where are you? He brings Adam and Eve near. He talks with them. He, he engages them in these questions. Um, but the serpent, it's noteworthy, um, gets no such opportunity. The serpent isn't asked any questions, isn't given any chance to respond. Um, for Adam and Eve, there will be hope, hope of restoration, hope of salvation. For the serpent, there is only judgment. There is only the curse. The Lord um, just begins right into it. Now, this is not popular thinking in our day. God is not required to offer mercy. There's no pressure on him. There's no burden on him to give grace. He doesn't have to. And here he doesn't. The Lord does as he pleases. He himself is the law. And he is holy and just. And he hates sin. He hates it. Psalm 5 
verses 4 and 5. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Of course, many of their gods in that day did delight in wickedness, not this God. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. We get that into our heads. Um, God hates sinners. It's uncomfortable, really uncomfortable. But it's there. It's all through Scripture. The reality is no one deserves anything from God except judgment. That's, that's what we deserve. Uh, I don't know if you have this in, in your house. Um, you might be giving discipline or making plans or parting out chores, and invariably um, one of the kids will cry out, that's not what? Fair. That's not fair. Um, he got something better than me. My discipline is worse than I deserve. I wanted to go do something else. This is not fair. And, and in those moments, I have learned over time, rather than getting frustrated and annoyed, um, instead to be thankful that my children have so graciously provided me with this gospel opportunity. And uh, I, I, tried it. I tried it again this morning. I started whining, that's not fair, just to see what my kids would say. And sure enough, my words started coming back to me. And I was like, this is great. They get it. They get it. They started preaching to me. Um, that's not fair. Let's stop. Let's talk about what fair is, shall we? The reality is, if you have sinned against God, if you have not lived your life in perfect obedience toward him, in thought, word, and deed, think about that, thought, word, and deed, then you rightly deserve hell. That is what fair would be for you, for me. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. That's fair. The fact that you're sitting here now breathing God's air, that's not fair. You don't want fair from God. Whatever you get in this life that is not pain and death and hell is God's merciful, undeserved kindness towards you. Talk of judgment is so unpopular today, but that's what we deserve. That's the harsh reality that God is just. Everyone seems to be confident. Um, if there is a God, I think he'll be fair, they say. I think he'll be fair. And by that they mean, um, I think he'll understand that I disobeyed him. I think he'll probably give me a second chance. I think he'll go leniently on my, my, little, my little sins. I think God will be fair. There is a God, and he is fair. And that does not bode well for us. Don't miss this. This is God's most basic disposition toward sin. This is the, the factory settings here. Sin deserves death. Hell is what is fair for every sinner, and that includes you, and that includes me. The Lord speaks to the serpent in judgment, and that's just absolutely expected and predicted. And as you go through Scripture, if we look at the world through a, a biblical lens, Scripture is never shocked as sinners are brought to judgment. The shock, the wonder of Scripture is when God's grace shows up. 
So God speaks in, in judgment. That's expected. And this already begins to build that expectation of a Savior. There, there's, there's no need for a Savior unless there's something to be saved from. In God's curse on the serpent, we see God is serious about sin. I mean, think Adam and Eve are sitting back and God is letting loose on Satan. And they're thinking, we're next. Where's this going? What does this mean for me? Is there another way? Those who rise up in pride against him are not going to win that. They will be crushed. They will be humbled. God is a God of justice and his enemies will be brought down. And it's easy for us to look at Satan and say, well, of course, of course God is pouring out his judgment on the devil. Um, that makes sense. But, but are we really all that different? We like to sanitize our sins, kind of dress them up a little bit. It's not gossip. It was just prayer requests. I, I don't hate that guy. I just don't ever want to spend a moment in the same room as him. I, I'm not selfish. I just know that if I don't look out for number one, um, nobody else is going to do it. And, and so we kind of tidy them up and we excuse them. But listen, all sin, all disobedience against God, even as small as eating a piece of forbidden fruit, I think God did that on purpose. It was, in our eyes, like that's a nothing sin. He just, just ate a piece of fruit. But it was disobedience. It was breaking the law of God. He was acting as though he does not exist. And that's every sin. Acting as if we are the ones who get to make the rules, that we know better, that, that God is not good. There's something else outside of obedience to him that is, that is better. Um, it's exalting ourselves in our pride, and God opposes the proud. He hates the arrogant. Psalm 16.5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. There's a, there's a verse you don't see on a coffee cup. That's not out front of the church sign. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. The curse of sin on the serpent is a warning to us. It ought to cause us to recognize our own pride to see the, the judgment of God and, and tremble. In that sense, we absolutely should be afraid of God, terrified of Him. Do you tremble before Him? Do you see your sin as offensive and grievous to Him? Do you realize that, that in your sinfulness, um, God abhors you? Words of Jonathan Edwards, this used to get read in the high schools, um, sinners in the hands of an angry God, buckle up. The God who holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes to bear you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more an abominable in, as abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in our eyes. You've offended him infinitely more than, than the most stubborn of rebel ever did offend his prince. And yet it is nothing 
Think about this. It is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not, um, that you did not go to hell the last night. That you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning, but that God's hand has upheld you. Wow. I thought this was a Christmas sermon. That's heavy. That's terrifying. Do you see the curse of sin with that kind of seriousness? Do you tremble before him? And that trembling should cause us to begin to look, to begin to wonder, is there another way? Is there any hope? Is there any kind of escape for me? So first we see this this curse of sin. It ought to cause us to tremble before the Lord. Thankfully, he doesn't stop there. The next thing we see uh, is the constant struggle. The constant struggle. Verse 15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity, conflict, tension, struggle between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, again, some would take this as just another one of those just-so stories. Remember those when you were kids? Like, this is how the snake lost its legs. This is why women hate snakes. Um, If that's what this verse is about, I I think there should be another one about spiders in my experience. Um, But again, there's more to it than this. This isn't just explaining why women and snakes don't get along, though they typically don't. But but once again, if we read this passage for what it is, if we see it in its context and what God is actually trying to communicate, there would be a battle, a struggle between the woman and the serpent, between her and her offspring, that's us, and Satan. And yet we see that enmity play out very clearly, even in the very next chapter. Uh, Genesis 4-7, the Lord says to Cain, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, and you have to rule over it. Sin is coming for you. It's going to try to destroy you, and you need to defeat it. You need to fight back. There's going to be this this battle, this struggle, this fight with sin and with Satan. And and on one hand, this is is a curse on Satan. This is is bad news for him, right? Satan thought, hey, I can can get this whole human race to myself. They'll all follow me. They'll rebel against God. God says, oh, it ain't going to be that easy. There's going to be a fight. There will always be some, my elect, who have rescued out of judgment who will be battling against you, Satan. This won't go easily or well for you. But that enmity runs both ways. And so as we look at it from, from our perspective, um, sin offends and angers the Lord, and Satan continues to try to draw us into it. For those who, are, who, who seek to follow the Lord, who are seeking to, to trust and, and obey and, and honor Him, there will always be a battle. There will always be opposition. It's relentless. There will be ongoing temptation. There will be deceit and, and lies, constant lies, relentless pressure, all bent toward your destruction in sin. Do you see the world around you that way? 
Do we live this way, thinking about this this battle that rages, that we have an enemy who is seeking to destroy us in sin at every turn? We will not have peace here. This world, this life will not be a place of comfort and ease. Uh, Ephesians 6.12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now get it, there's an assumption there that we do wrestle But it's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I think it's really easy to miss what that means, to to misunderstand this wrestling that we're involved in. Uh, It absolutely is a spiritual battle. But if you put it in the context of the book of Ephesians, if you look at what what Paul has been teaching and talking about, what is it that culminates here in him talking about this struggle? Um, It's not some kind of mystical, ethereal demon thing that he's talking about. Just flip back over the last few chapters and and, and see what he's talking about. Paul Paul leads up to this comment about spiritual warfare um, after saying, Hey, we need to live lives of gentleness and, and patience and forgiveness and love. Unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. It's about putting off the old self with its deceitful desires and putting on the, the new self created in Christ Jesus, living in, in righteousness and, and holiness. It's really practical. It's about wives submitting to their husbands and, and husbands loving their wives. It's about children obeying their parents and parents bringing their children up in the wisdom and instruction of the Lord. It's about working at our jobs in, in honesty and integrity and diligence for the glory of God. Paul is saying when you're, when you're doing those things, when you're striving to do that, you are fighting against demonic powers that oppose you. You are wrestling against um, Satan and his demons in this world. And you will need the whole armor of God in order to be able to live that way, in order to be able to live in accordance with with God's commands. Because Satan will try to deceive you and derail you and tempt you. It's spiritual warfare, believing and obeying God against the lies of the enemy. And that's what spiritual warfare has been right from the beginning. When Satan himself entered the garden, there was spiritual warfare as Satan said, did God really say? Can you trust him? Is he actually good? Haven't you wondered what that fruit would be like if you just tasted it? That's it. That's spiritual warfare. Trusting the word of God and the goodness of God and discarding Satan's lies. That's hard. That's harder than we give it credit. And as long as we live in this world, that battle will continue fiercely. And ironically, one of Satan's greatest lies for us today here in our culture is that you can be comfortable. You can be at ease. It's okay. Relax. We can fit in. We can can be at peace here. He even even lets us kind of talk a good game. We can can get together and we can can have these public discussions about all the things that are wrong with this world. We can talk about the the trans movement and abortion and corrupt governments grabbing power and all these things. And and then feeling like we've done this good kind of spiritual battle out here, we we go home and we take our wife for granted and we glut ourselves on food and, and we yell at our kids to be quiet and we plop ourselves down in front of garbage on a screen all evening. And I know you do it, because I do it. 
This is the world that we live in. This is the battle that we fight. I get to stand up here and preach. Pretty easy for me to go home and feel like I did some good spiritual thing today, but I have to go home and live that, just like all of us. The spiritual battle, the, the, the battle for obedience to the Lord uh, is, is won on the battlefield of the mundane. We see these big, flashy issues, but it's the, it's the boring, mundane things where we let our guard down. We will not be able to rest. For those who seek to honor the Lord, um, not in this life. There won't be peace in this world. We will always be under attack from this enemy. Uh, J.C. Ryle, his excellent book, uh, just called Holiness, um, he says this, True Christianity is a struggle, a fight, a warfare. Where there is grace, there will be conflict. The believer is a soldier. There is no holiness without warfare. Saved souls will always be found to have fought a good fight. Why why do we think this would be easy? Why do we think we could just coast along on on autopilot? 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful, be on guard. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking somewhere to devour someone to devour, right? You go home and, man, I'm feeling a little bit grumpy. My kids are going to come out. They're going to be excited and happy about something, and I'm, I just want them to be quiet. I know it's coming. That's a, that's a lion waiting to devour you. I need to be ready for battle when I go into the home, right? I'm going to be selfish. I'm going to be demanding things of, of my wife, or I'm going to be um, thinking this is all about me and I want my comfort here instead of coming home to serve. That's a, a prowling lion at my door. I have to be aware of that. The world is not a safe place. Our enemy is constantly seeking to destroy us. He's looking for someone um, who, who is not uh, who, who's not paying attention, who's not alert. Right? You, we've all watched the Discovery Channel. Which one does the, does the lion or the cheetah go after? It's not the gazelle who's standing there watching everything and paying attention. It's the one at the back who's off chasing a butterfly. He's done. He's toast. This battle, this ongoing enmity in this world, this struggle against sin and Satan, once again, it ought to leave us a little bit desperate. Looking forward, looking for some kind of end, some kind of rescue. This world is hard and and it's relentless. And that is exactly what the Lord offers then in the next line of verse 15. Not only is there the curse of sin and then this constant struggle, but there is a coming Savior. Coming Savior. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see the phrase about the the enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman is is somewhat oddly written. And and the first time you read it, um, you you see this kind of generational battle. It's going to be this this ongoing fight. And the fact that that offspring is singular isn't problematic because it's a collective singular, right? It's one offspring, but there's a lot of people included in that. 
So this battle rages through the generations, but then you get to verse 15, and the offspring takes on a new meaning. All of a sudden, the Lord says, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He, his? All of a sudden, there's these masculine singular pronouns interjected, and we're no longer talking about generic offspring. Now, all of a sudden, we're talking about something specific, someone specific. Right here uh, is the first promise of Christmas made. This is the reason this passage is often called the the Proto-Evangelium, the the first gospel. Right here, the the first promise comes. This is uh, Charles Simeon calls this the sum and summary of the whole Bible. This verse the sum and summary of the whole Bible. This isn't just Christmas in a nutshell. This is the Bible in a nutshell. This is, this is human existence in a nutshell. It's not the full oak tree yet. It's not everything clearly laid out in detail with all of its pieces developed, but it's this condensed down, simplified gospel, all of the essential elements are there. The the genetic DNA of the gospel is all there. So we'll spend this week and next week and Christmas Eve and Christmas Day unpacking just some of this. But there's going to be this battle between the offspring of the woman, the offspring of the serpent, down through the ages, and eventually there will be one singular offspring. It's male pronouns. It will be a man offspring. And he will bruise the serpent's head, and the serpent will bruise his heel. I appreciate the consistency of the ESV there. Um, A lot of translations use two different words for for bruise or or strike. Um, It's the same Hebrew word used twice. The blow against the serpent is the same blow that hits the offspring. Um, The word is shuf, and it's a violent word. It means to apply downward force. I love how kind of sanitized these... these, uh, Um, dictionary descriptions are to apply downward force, so to crush or to to bruise or to to overwhelm or to batter. It's the same word used both times. The the difference isn't the word used, it's the location of the blow, right? The serpent will bruise or crush or batter the offspring's heel. That's going to hurt. That's going to cause pain. It's a significant blow, but it's It's the heel. It's the foot. The offspring will bruise or crush or batter the serpent's head. That's a painful blow. That's a significant blow. More than that, that, that's a fatal blow. That's a destroying blow. So right here, um, the curse is given to the serpent, and at the same time, the promise has been given to mankind. Yes, God is holy and righteous and just. He will absolutely crush those who oppose him. He hates sinners. He abhors the proud. Yes, you have an enemy who is powerful and fierce, who is tempting and deceiving us into pride, into enmity against God instead of against him. But one day, one day there will be a child born of the woman 
who would strike this definitive blow in that battle, who would come and defeat the serpent. Now again, these promises aren't fully developed here, but in seed form, there's some very interesting details. Offspring of the woman. Literally, that could be read the seed of the woman. That's a weird phrase. The man has the seed, the female has the egg. Um, We'll chase that out a little more next week. Um, But there's something odd about the parentage of this child. The fact that this offspring will crush the head of the serpent. Remember, he's talking uh, not just about a snake, but about Satan himself. To crush the head, to, to deal a mortal blow to Satan, that's significant. That's not a physical act. That's a spiritual act. That's going to take something more than a mere human. That's going to take someone of supernatural qualities. So they begin to watch. They begin to wait, to look and and hope and and long for this this serpent-crushing offspring. And I, I can't help but think that's exactly what's going on as we look just a little bit ahead to Genesis 4, verse 1. This is the very next story in the Bible. It says, Now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So God promises there's going to be a a male offspring who will will crush the head of the serpent, and then whatever it is, 9, 10, 20 months later, a male offspring comes. I've got a man. The help of the Lord, this is it, this is, this is him, this is the one. Sadly, the story unfolds. This male offspring is named Cain, and he does not crush the serpent, but falls victim to his lies and his deceit and temptation. And so rather than killing the serpent, he kills his brother. He's not the one. He's not the one. When? Lord, if not him, Who? Can you imagine? We're like two years into this promise, and Adam and Eve are like, oh. I guess maybe it's like 20 years. Cain and Abel are grown now, but, but still. Not the one. And, and that begins this just long line of disappointments. Chapter 5 has the Bible's first genealogy. Look at it. It's a list of 10 generations of male offspring. And if you just scroll through, your eyes might notice the end of each sentence. What's the the constantly repeated phrase through chapter 5? And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. As you read through the Old Testament, keep Genesis 3.15 in the back of your mind. Run everything through that grid. Every male child is born with this, this question mark over their head. Maybe this is the one. And God brings about miraculous births and they, and they go, maybe this is the one. And, and some of them live lives that point forward to Christ. Some of them live lives that show how far they are from Christ. But they're all pointing forward. Every promise given, every prophecy made, all of Scripture is, is drawing from this promise and looking forward. It's God saying, this is a little bit more about who he will be. This is a little bit more about what he will accomplish when he comes. Wait for him, look for him, wait for him. 
Decades turn into centuries and centuries turn into millennia looking, waiting, longing until finally an angel appears to a young woman, the town of Nazareth, nobody. And Luke 1, verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is the one. He's finally come. The angel appears to her husband also, Matthew 1.21 and says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. That curse of God, that, that hatred of God towards sinners, this male offspring of the woman will rescue his people from that. In the Christmas story, the promise of Genesis 3.15 is just beginning to be fulfilled. And of course, that fulfillment begins in a cradle. God himself coming down in human form. Who could have seen that? God becoming the offspring of the woman. And it will culminate on the cross. Satan would bruise his heel. Satan would deal out a painful blow. Jesus would be whipped and mocked and humiliated and ultimately crucified. Though it was a, a painful blow, a, a significant blow, it would not in the end be a fatal blow. Though Jesus would die on that cross, on the third day he would rise again because death had no power over him. As God himself, guilty of no sin, death has no grip. It's not a just judgment on him himself. He died not for his own sins, but for ours. And in death, Jesus would win the victory over Satan. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says this about what God did through Jesus on the cross. Listen carefully. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. The terms rulers and authorities, we saw that back in Ephesians. That's, that's Paul's term for, for Satan and his demons. These spiritual forces of darkness, um, this is that constant battle. And on the cross, Jesus disarmed them. He puts them to open shame. He embarrasses them. He, he presses their faces down into the dust by triumphing over them. The cross is this fatal blow to Satan's rule. But but how exactly? What exactly is happening here? How does he do it? How is it that Satan is defeated on the cross? Well, look at the beginning of that passage. He canceled 
the record of debt, our sins recorded before the holy and just God. Every, every word, thought, or deed that was counter to God's command recorded in God's judgment. That record of debt stands against us with its legal demands. What are the legal demands? God hates it. It's his wrath, it's death, it's hell. Those are the legal demands that hang over us because of our record of debt. And on the cross, Jesus cancels the record of debt, setting it aside, getting it out of the way, making it null and void. How? By nailing it to the cross. Because all those who put their trust in Christ have had their sin paid for on his cross. He took it away. That hatred of God. It's true. God abhors the arrogant. God hates sinners. Uh, that, that picture of God holding the sinner uh, as a spider over the fire, that's, that's not false. But God also loves the sinner. God also has grace. And God sent his son to make a way that that loathsome creature might be redeemed, might be made new, might be washed and made pure and holy before him. Jesus took it away. The sin that made us this rightful target of God's wrath is abolished. The name Satan, it it can literally be translated the accuser. That's who he is. That's what he does. That's his power. Satan doesn't send people to hell. He he doesn't have that. That's way above his pay grade, right? God is the judge. Hell is the place of God's wrath, not Satan's wrath. Satan's power is to deceive and accuse, to tempt and draw into sin, and then to hold up that record of debt before the Lord, before the holy God, and say, look, God, guilty. They've sinned. They deserve your wrath. And God is just. He will punish sin. But Jesus destroys the power of Satan when he takes that record of debt that hung over our heads. The actual sins of actual people. And he paid that penalty. He paid that price on the cross. And so that record of debt now has big red letters stamped across it, paid. Paid in full. Now when Satan holds up the record of debt before God as judge, it no longer carries any weight. It it doesn't matter. In fact, it has the opposite effect as it says, not guilty. He's disarmed. He's defanged. We used to have garter snakes growing up, and every now and then they'd bite you and you laugh at them because they're dumb and and they have no teeth and it doesn't do anything, right? Satan still thrashes about. He's still angry. He still attacks believers, but his fangs are taken out. It's a much different thing to be bit by a cobra, right? You don't laugh that one off. But Satan's been disarmed for all those who are in Christ. So Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 33 asks this question, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who can condemn? You see the logic there? If God says not guilty, who are you going to complain to? Who are you going to condemn to? 
There's nobody left. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised to life, and he sits at the right hand of God interceding for us. So, so who, shall, who shall bring any judgment against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You can't. If Jesus has purchased our justification, if he's canceled the record of debt, and he not only died to do it, but he rose again and sits at the right hand of God, what does Satan have left? He's finished. The the battle is won. This is the Savior that was promised. This is the hope that we have. This is why at Christmas we get a little bit excited. Because Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil, to crush the head of the serpent. And we know that someday soon he's coming again to bring that victory into completion, to bring the new heavens, the new earth, the fullness of his perfect kingdom, which will never end. Christ will be the ultimate victor. All those who belong to him, who are, who are marked by repentance and faith in him, will live in that ultimate victory. And all of this flows out of that promise that was made from the very, very beginning. From the very first day that sin entered the world, God began to reveal, I have a plan already in place. I'm already at work. There would be a coming savior, a rescuer, this male child of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And and so we, we celebrate Christmas. And yet, it is so easy to get caught up, isn't it? Maybe even a little bit lost in all the, the activity and the traditions and the Christmas parties and and we see the the coming of a baby and we, we lose sight of the much bigger picture of what that all means. As we celebrate Christmas. We're celebrating one crucial piece, one one crucial moment in this bigger picture of God's glorious plan. The arrival of that Savior, promised from the very beginning, who came to to die in the place of sinners, to, to undo the curse of sin. And again, who will come again and bring that kingdom into full, glorious fullness and completion. Do you celebrate Christmas with that hope? Do you keep that in the front of our minds as we celebrate? That understanding of a a true, fuller purpose of the coming Savior. We're going to close this morning celebrating communion together. I'll ask the worship team to to come and prepare to lead us again in song. Um, Christmas actually isn't commanded in Scripture. We're not commanded to celebrate the birth of Christ. It's a pretty good thing to celebrate, and, and, and we ought to as we have this opportunity. We're not commanded to. We are, however, commanded to celebrate the death of Christ. We're commanded to gather together frequently and, and to, um, to remember his death very specifically as we uh, eat of bread and drink of the juice together. Um, we remember his death. We remember this story, this amazing salvation that God has, has brought. And, and so um, this is for those who are believers this morning. This is for those who, who come and, and are able to say, that was me. I deserved God's wrath. And I have come to him in repentance, turning away from sin, 
and faith turning to Christ, trusting in him for my salvation. So if that's not you this morning, we just ask that you, um, you just observe. And that's okay. Just let the, the, the cups pass by and, and, and just observe. But, but, but I would encourage you to think about um, your place before God and the, the righteous wrath of God toward your sin and, and this offer of forgiveness that he holds out um, to all who will come to him. For those of you who are in Christ, um, you know this, but let's be reminded again, this is the grace of God toward us as we celebrate. It's not just, it's not just bread and juice. Um, this is us standing together to say, um, I was dead and now have been given life. I deserve hell and I have been given heaven and an eternity with him. And so we proclaim that together. Um, so um, I invite you to stand. The elements will be handed out as we sing together. You'll find two cups, uh, the bread on the bottom, the